You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God, then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Amen. Well, uh, before we dive into today's text, I just want to piggyback off what Johnny said. We uh, really, really do want you to come out. And when asking Johnny and recently just talking about uh, this event or a concert, uh, he just expressed how he wants us to pack the place out so that there will be energy and just genuine worship to Jesus. So make sure you put that on your calendar to come out and to enjoy. Our worship team does so much of what they do with just such intentionality, and we want to make sure that we uh, just support them in that. And the church said, all right. For those of you first-time guests, what's up? My name is Jamal. I'm glad that you're here. I pray that a song will be sung, a word spoken that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into um, our sermon today. Jesus, I pray that you would make much of yourself through the preaching of this word. I pray that you'll just give me wisdom as I articulate publicly which you have helped and prepare privately. And I pray for the hearts of your people, that they would be able to pay attention to this word and apply the portions that you have for them to themselves. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Holy Spirit, help us. Give us joy as we seek to be not only hearers of your word, but doers. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Well, here's a quick confession for you all. Um, If you know me, then you know this is true. I'm a bit envious of a certain type of person, that man or that woman who is gifted as a handy person, all right, who can see a project, who gets excited, And they just build it and they build it with perfection. Now, it's not that I can't do something handy. It's that I don't like to. Um, I have the attention span of a gnat. And it just does not seem fun sitting on a floor and putting something together. And one of the problems I have is that I don't like to read the instructions. If I see it and I see the picture, I should be able to put it together without reading 99 points of instructions, right, man? And so what often happens, especially what happened in my younger years, is I would try to put it together, and I would get frustrated halfway through, and then I'll have to undo what I was doing, and then I have to read the instructions. But as I got older, 
I learned that instructions do matter. And so now when I'm trying to put something together, I won, I slow down, slow down, woosah, bring it all in. Two, I read the instructions. And three, which often happens, I ask my wife for help. (laughs) That's not me and my wife, if you hadn't picked that up. (laughs) Stock photo. (laughs) I didn't pull a Michael Jackson, all right? It's just stock photo there. But that's not what happens. And so today we're going to continue our series in the book of Genesis. And we've been doing a series called Sacred. And uh, last two weeks, we looked at sacred singleness. And this week, we're going to look at sacred marriage. And next week, we're going to look at sacred marriage as well. Um, And here's the truth. This one sermon, as one of the pastors graciously told me, it was like, man, that was three sermons in one. It is. Amen. (laughs) So I'm just going to give you the heads up. We're going to go through some of these principles. Next week, the sermon is going to be a little shorter because we're going to do uh, about a a 20-minute sermon, picking up on this week and doing some more application. But Amber's going to join me afterwards, and we're going to do a 25-minute Q&A, Ask Anything, where you can text your questions, and she will answer all of your questions, all right? (laughs) Um, And it's going to be all things relationships, not just marriage. So Uh, So today we're going to dive into Genesis uh, chapter 2, looking at those verses 15 uh, through 24 and talking about sacred marriage. And as we uh, do so, I want to acknowledge a couple things. As we slow down, as we read God's instructions for what marriage is, how it should look, um, and as we uh, are confronted by things, if we're married, that maybe we don't do well and we ask for help. But as we get started, I want to talk first to those who are, are single here. Um, and I want to encourage you not to check out. You talked about this the last two weeks. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this, marriage is to be honored by all. Marriage is to be honored by all. And I just want to encourage you and let you know that you're single, uh, that your married brothers and sisters in Christ need you to listen. And we need your help. If we're doing transformative, deep community together, um, we need everyone to play a part of that. We need your prayers. We need your advice. We need you to call out unhealthy attitudes and unhealthy pursuits. But second, I want to say to those who are single, um, who are widowed or divorced, um, that I've been praying for you this week and what I've been praying uh, four is that um, you would hear the voice of your welcoming, loving father and not the voice of Satan who seeks to condemn, to accuse, or to make you feel bad. Um, as you are listening to the sermon, uh, don't should on yourself throughout it, or I should have on myself. We call it that shouldn't on yourself here. Y'all so silly. (laughs) Instead, man, remember the gospel. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember that you've been washed clean and that God sings loudly over you. And if you're married here, remember that in general, as this word is a double-edged sword, it's a double-edged sword to me. I failed this week. I blew it on multiple occasions, and I needed the gospel. 
and I need the gospel even as I preach. Amen. We're going to do three simple movements. The first movement that we're going to look at is marriage before the fall. The second is marriage uh, as a result of the fall. And then the third, we're going to look like marriage now for those who are in Christ. Marriage now for those who are in Christ. As we think about marriage before the fall, we see in Genesis chapter 2 that God creates Adam and that he creates him without a companion. And we talked about this in uh, previous weeks, how God fashioned Adam out of the dust of the ground. He blows his breath into Adam. He then prepares this beautiful garden called Eve, Eden for him. And he sets Adam into uh, what some theologians like to call this divine sanctuary. And he tells Adam to subdue it and to, to work it, to cultivate um, this area. But as Adam is working and creating, God also gives him another call. And this call is to name all of the animals. So God sets before him all of the animals uh, in the alphabet, right? Um, and he, uh, he has those animals parade before him, and Adam gets to name the animals. Uh, Adam works as the first biologist. This is his brain before the fall, fully capable, working. He's studying, he's naming, he's calling, he's studying, he's naming. And it appears, I think it can be inferred, that as Adam is doing this, that there is, is probably an observation for Adam that every animal has uh, another of its kind. It's male and it's female. And God makes this pronouncement and he names that something is not good. The first thing that is named not good in the scripture, and it's for man to be alone. And so God puts Adam in a, into a deep sleep. He performs the first surgery in scripture. And this is a sacred, holy, phenomenal moment. He cuts on Adam. I always wondered, was it, was it blood there? How long did the surgery happen? And he takes one of Adam's ribs out, and then he fashions woman. And then God acts as the first marriage officiant, as well as the first father to give his daughter away. He performs the sacred, beautiful wedding for them. And he presents Eve to Adam, who calls her woe man. Man and woman, pointing to even the way that Eve was created, this interdependence that they would have on one another as she is declared his helper, the one who's going to help him. And we talked about how that is neither saying that she's stronger or weaker, but one who is to complement him. And Adam then writes the first poem of the Bible. He says, at last shows appreciation for what is set before him. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, very similar to man. She shall be called woman. And then Moses adds in verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become unified. They shall become one flesh. And this is the work of marriage. For a husband to leave and to cleave and to set the atmosphere of a home of unity, of oneness. 
And that's what we're going to deal with next week. This principle one is how to do it. But I'll give you a quick preview and let you know that this oneness that he's calling them to, this call to leave and to cleave for ancient Israel. When a, a, a man got married, he often lived in close proximity to his parents, if not on the same land as his parents, as he would receive uh, possibly his father's inheritance. So it's not talking about necessarily a geographical far separation as much as it is learning to value one's spouse's opinions, thoughts, desires, gifts, dreams, more than anyone else's. Learning to know each other so that you together can glorify Christ. If I had to sum up marriage before the fall, I would simply say that marriage before the fall is poetic. It's beautiful. The first poem of the Bible is Adam writing some verses about how much he loves his new bride. And then we see marriage after the fall. And marriage after the fall takes a quick turn. Now, this is an interesting note, and this is going to help us because in a minute we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to walk through it uh, rather quickly. But this is an interesting note that God gives Adam the command. And then when Adam and Eve sins, that God explicitly holds Adam accountable to the breaking of the command. It's also interesting to note that the eyes of both Adam and Eve were open when Adam failed. And so that's important to see in this Genesis narrative that there is an accountability that is given by God to men for the direction of their family and their marriage. And if we do not properly understand what that accountability is and what it's not, what's healthy and what's unhealthy, a lot of harm can be done. And so we're going to look at marriage in Christ um, as our last point. But the fall happens. Eve sins, listens to the serpent's voice. Rather than remaining human-sized, she seeks to be God-sized, to be like God. Satan tempts her by putting in uh, some half-truths about God, getting her to doubt God's goodness. And as a result, she looks at this tree and she sees that it is good for food and it looks delightful and she eats. She gives to Adam. And for whatever reason, the text doesn't say why, Adam ate too. My guess is that Adam's like, there's no sense of me being over here and you over there. (laughs) He just said, whoa, man, I want to... No, okay. Y'all not. (laughs) All right. But anyway, he, he eats. And as a result, sin enters into the world. The world becomes cursed. The fall happens. And what was poetic now becomes painful. Shame comes in. Shame and fear comes in. Accusations come in. Rather than appreciating each other, now they're pointing the finger at each other. Well, Adam's pointed at Eve, Eve is pointing at the serpent, and everyone is blaming everyone for the dysfunction that is happening. And I think a lot of the marital tension and marital problems that we experience is really a a result of shame. Ed Welch writes, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. You are disgraced because you acted less than human. You are treated as if you were less than human. 
or you were associated with something less than human. And there are witnesses. And I think because of the fall and because of sin, we, when we sin, there's this temptation for us to feel, to feel shame, to feel exposed, to feel overly, to be put in an overly vulnerable place. And rather than respond out of the gospel, believing that God loves us and that in Christ he has covered our sins, we try to cover our sins with more work, with excuses, and with blame shifting. The gospel frees us from that. One of our pastors recently was talking, and he just simply uh, uh, said this, which I thought was beautiful. He said, the gospel tells us that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. And in those shame moments, that should remind us that, that Jesus died for you because he loves you, that you were worth dying for in his eyes. But the gospel also reminds us that Jesus had to die for us. So in those moments of shame when our ego takes over and we can't acknowledge our sin and don't take personal responsibility, we must remind ourselves that we are sinners that Jesus had to die for. And that's the beauty of the gospel. But as a result of this sin, we see that a curse happens. We have pastors that's going to unpack the curse that is received in Genesis chapter 3 in upcoming weeks. But listen to this. God says in Genesis 3, 16, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And what's interesting here is that this, the wife's desire and the husband's now ruling is both misplaced because in Genesis 1, remember, they were to rule or to have dominion over all of the creative order, but they're not to rule over each other. They're to complement each other. But as a result of sin and as a result of the fall, we see that this this wife has this this desire, this, this craving for her husband, and this husband has this craving to rule over her. And rather than complimenting one another, it becomes a competition. Here's my main point. In Christ, God's goal for marriages and Christian marriages is for us to cultivate marriages that are a duet and not a duel. Marriages that smell like the aroma of the gospel. Marriages that point people to Jesus and the way that he leads us, not in a domineering, heavy-handed, ruling way, but in a servant leadership way, in a way that allowed him to die for us. And I want us to remember that as a result of the fall, that there is pain in marriage, But not only is there pain, but there can be poetry in marriage. And this can happen as we remind ourselves of the promise of the gospel and the goodness of God. And so as we move to our last point, I want us to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read that real quick. 
And as we think about Adam and Eve and how they sinned and how marriage uh, became difficult afterwards, how they hid themselves in shame, how uh, they became a duet, uh, dual instead of a, a duet, we want to point ourselves to uh, what the Bible uh, teaches us, a, a vision for biblical marriage, a vision for biblical marriage. And a lot of what we're going to see is, is really answering the question, like, what is a healthy marriage? How does a husband and a wife relate to each other? And I think that in this text that we're going to look at really quickly, there are some misnomers and some unhealthy uh, interpretations that lead to this ruling and this, this desiring of each other that is not healthy. In Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, the Bible says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, So also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like it, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church to sum up each one of you is to love his wife as himself And the wife is to respect her husband. So in Ephesians, we see this thing uh, starting in Ephesians chapter one of this mystery being revealed. And essentially see three mysteries that Paul points to. First, the mystery of of heaven and earth in Ephesians chapter one. Second, the mystery of Jew and Gentile in Ephesians chapter two, that the two has become one man. And third, we see this this mystery that marriage um, points us to a greater reality, which is Christ's relationship for his church. I once heard uh, someone say, a a pastor say, hey, I believe that sheep was essentially created by God so that when Christians read the New Testament and the illustration about Jesus being a good shepherd, they can understand what that means and how sheep look. In the same way, I believe Paul is getting us to a, a deep reality that this institution of marriage ultimately was created or points us to the way that Christ relates to his church. It points us to this union with Christ. Marriage shows us how Christ, who is the head of the church, leads the church through sacrificial, self-giving love. And it shows how the church respects or submits and responds to the sacrificial, self-giving love. And when a marriage, when a man and a woman come together as a res- in, in the power of the Holy Spirit and they live this way in this sacrificial, self-giving way, it points to this great reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those around us can see how good Jesus is by how he loves his church. And so God wants our marriages here at Sojourn to be marriages that are Poetic and that, yes, have pain because we are sinners, 
But marriages that point people to the promise of the gospel, the restoration of all things. So Paul points this out. And as he points this out, he essentially shows us two things. One, he shows us that both husbands and and wives have an opportunity to live out this gospel. And one of the harder things in this text is this idea of headship. Paul talks about the husband being the head of his wife. And this is a a body metaphor, just like the head of, just like a body has a head. He's essentially saying that in the family unit that there, that the husband is the head of his family, of his wife, in the same way that Christ is the head for the church. And the question is, what does this mean, headship? Some people say that this is a, a picture of uh, preeminence because Adam is created first. Some would argue that this is a picture of authority, that the husband is the authority figure of the home. But I think in order to understand this illustration, we want to see what Paul is doing in uh, first century uh, Rome in the context in which he is given. And what we learn by reading uh, first century Roman history is Plutarch as well as Seneca, when they speak of headship, um, they speak of it as, as authority. They speak of Nero, Seneca does, as the head of Rome and everyone else being a part of the body. And this was a, a really a fearful image. This was an image that said the body lives and exists to serve the head. But I love what Michelle uh, Lee uh, Barnwell says And I think she rightfully argues that what Paul is doing in Ephesus is actually flipping this illustration on his head. That Paul is pointing to Christ being the head of his church and showing that Paul, that Jesus does not lead his church through this authoritarian, cold, dictatorship way. But rather, Jesus leads his church through sacrifice and self-giving. After all, Jesus is the rabbi who washes his disciples' feet and who tells them that if you don't allow me to wash your feet, you you have no part of me. And so what Paul is doing is saying that the Christian family and Christian marriage is unlike anything else that's happening in Rome because the person who is given responsibility to steward the family and to be a stable presence in the family is the person who's called to lead the family through love and uh, servitude, which is radical. So for some of us, we have a big problem with headship, and that's because we have a more Roman understanding of headship rather than what Paul is doing with a Christian set of headship. I love what Matthew Henry says. He says, listen, the woman was made out of the rib or the side of man, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to trample upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. That brother has some game. Amen. Come on now. Come on, Matthew. I was talking to one of our pastors this week, Pastor Dave Owens, and he referred to uh, uh, someone saying, yeah, the, 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 the job of a husband is not that of an authoritarian. The job of a husband is to be a stabilizing presence in a home. Stabilizing presence. Most of the grapes that's eaten in the United States are grown in Napa Valley, California. In order for a vine of grapes to become fruitful, the branches of the vine must be elevated. The branches are tied to 
a post for support. As grapes develop and grow, the vine will become too heavy and begin to droop and drag on the ground. Elevation not only keeps the fruit off the ground, but also helps them to get the full benefit of the sun. After a time, the branches begin to spread along the post to which they have been tied. Having been made stable, they are then free to climb and to spread. In the same way, stability allows a woman and children in a home to feel secure and cared for. She then is able to flourish and to climb as high as the Lord has called her to. I think that this is the picture that we see in the Bible of a, of a husband not being this authoritarian, I'm the leader of the household, everyone do as I said, but leading like Jesus Christ, taking on this servant leadership posture. Psalm 128, y'all probably know this song by heart because I feel like I quoted every week. Blessed, happy is the man who fears the Lord, who walks according to his ways. For his wife shall be like a fruitful vine in his house and his children like olive shoots around the table. Happy, blessed is the man. This is a picture of of stability. Men, Adams, as we're seeking to live an example of the second Adam, it's hard. I know as a man, and I fell at this often, but praise God for Jesus Christ, who is my mediator, your mediator. God is calling us to be physically, spiritually, and emotionally present in a home to create stability so that everyone can flourish in their God-given callings, leadership, and responsibility. That means physically. No man should, I love what one person said, no man should tout that he's, I'm sorry, uh, uh, physically is by actually being present. One writer says that no man should tout that he's the head of his house when he's really there to help make it a home. Are you physically present? Are you giving your energy to the well-being of the home? Are you serving in the home? Not just living and saying, hey, my job is to make the bread and cup or whatever. No, are you present in the home physically? The Bible says, uh, when I was a man, I thought of as a man. I I lived as a man, but when I was a child, I thought as a child, I lived as a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things away. Men, we're called to put childish things away. Spiritually, our job as men is to create an atmosphere where Jesus Christ is worshiped in our home. And that looks differently for each of us as we have different gifts. Um, but the, the goal is for us to take responsibility and to make sure that Jesus is worshiped in our home. And that's going to look differently. That's something that you and your wife uh, may need to talk about. And that's something that's wives that you may have to be gracious with and encourage rather than to condemn. And that's something that you both may have to speak and learn from a couple who does this well. But what does it look like for you spiritually to be a stabilizing presence? Emotionally. Emotionally. As, As men... Uh, Sometimes it's hard for us emotionally because maybe we didn't see emotional health modeled well at home. Maybe we grew up in a home where conflict wasn't revolved in a healthy biblical way, where perhaps our father or mother shut down or uh, became aggressive and created an atmosphere where it was just unsafe to, to do something wrong or to express how you feel. 
And so all of us as men, we have to go on a journey to learn to be emotionally healthy, to acknowledge our emotions. I love how God models that in, in, in Genesis chapter two, when he says, listen, something's not good. <laughs> and, and sometimes we need to acknowledge, say, something's not good in my heart. I may need to take a step back and to, to do some digging and see what it is, but to pursue emotional health. That's a whole sermon by itself. I want to encourage you. There's a book uh, by Jason Wilson called Cry Like a Man. Uh, fighting for freedom from emotional incarceration, in which he tells his story in a very powerful way. It's published by Cook uh, Publishing, which is a Christian conservative publishing company, but it's really helpful. I've been reading it lately on how to process your emotions because what we don't transform, we will transfer. So as men, you guys heard me say this quite a bit. Um, four principles that I try to remind myself of often is I want to be a man that rallies. R-A-L-I. I want to be a man that rejects passivity. I don't know what Adam was doing, why he didn't step up to the plate when Satan was running game on Eve. But it was his responsibility. It was his responsibility. Like, yo, bro, this ain't cool. This is what God said. I'm going to trust God. He's a good and faithful God. Look at this divine sanctuary that he set for us. So we want to reject being passive. And that's a learning process. It doesn't happen overnight. We've got to unlearn some ways to relearn some ways. And and Jesus is with you and he's gracious to guide you. We all have to learn some ways. So we got to accept responsibility. When something goes wrong in the house, even if it's not our fault, Before pointing the finger, we need to ask the Lord help to show me how I can help to create a better atmosphere where this happens. Accept responsibility. And it's hard because we have egos, right? E-G-O, we edge God out. And it's humbling. And sometimes our shame gets to us. Just this week, I blew it. I blew it with my wife. One morning, I just blew it. And she called, she texted me and sent me the kindest, sweetest text to let me know I blew it. And I had, a resp- I had an opportunity at that moment. I said, well, I can point out where she blew it, or I could just be like, I blew it. And I, I'm not going to tell you what I did. It's none of your business. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I texted her and just said, I blew it. Will you forgive me? And she graciously offered forgiveness. And that's leading courageously, the L. Leading courageously isn't this brave heart picture of us just running in the battle, being courageous, never making a mistake, never failing. Leading courageously is what David modeled after he sinned with Bathsheba. It is against you and you alone that I've sinned. I tell people David's biggest victory was not him defeating Goliath. It was him looking in the mirror and seeing how horrible his sin was, confessing it to God confessing it to other people, and moving on in his relationship with the Lord. And the gospel gives us the freedom to do that. Because the gospel tells us that the worst things about us is already known. It has already been said. We have nothing to prove. Therefore, we have nothing to lose. It was nailed on a cross in Jesus. 
God's wrath towards us was poured on him. And it's the wrath that we deserve. And Jesus took our sin. He took the worst things about us. He buried it in the grave and he got up with all power in his hand. And he sits on the right hand side of the father, welcoming us and even telling us to have the audacity to come before his throne of grace with boldness. And then the I invest in eternity. Now, the husband sacrifices through, which means that we live by setting a stable household where we understand that only what we do for Jesus will last. And yes, God has given us good gifts for us to enjoy. But our main focus as a family is not to lay up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroys, but to lay up our inheritance in heaven, Jesus said, where neither rust nor moth can destroy Y'all still with me? Verse 22, it's interesting that Paul in Ephesians 5 talks about the wives first, and he talks, just gives the two verses. Then he talks about the husband. He gives like six or seven verses. I think that's intentional. And even when he talks about the husband, he points the husband to Jesus's leadership, how Christ loved the church. And this word love is agapeo. It's this active love of God for his son and for his people. He says, just as Christ actively loved, as does God actively loves his son and his people, you are to actively love your wife, tangibly love your wife and your children. As Christ loved the church, specifically your wives, and he gave himself for her. He washed her with the word. He presents her in splendor without spot or wrinkle. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own body which means that husbands are to wake up in the morning not thinking about how can I get her to serve me, but we are to live with the attitude of the mind of Christ who did not think equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself even to death on the cross. But rather, how can I serve my wife? If the husband is doing that and the wife is doing that, there's this holy, beautiful supernatural dance that's taking place that the world can look in and say, yes, this is poetic. Man, it's all so painful because I see that you guys are imperfect, but y'all live with a a sort of a promise towards each other. And so in verse 22, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as unto the Lord. And that sounds like a curse word to so many. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he's the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. And wives are, God is not calling wives to think and to behave, to, to think that their husband is, is Christ, but he's saying that you should follow in the illustration, serve or uh, to respect one's husband as the church respects Christ. And the way that a wife honors her husband is by submitting to his leadership. And I haven't met too many wives who would not submit to the leadership of a man who is stable and self-giving. And this word submit does not mean that a wife is to be a doormat. It doesn't mean that she is to remain silent. I've talked about this quite a bit. This is not a call for wives to 
to follow her husband into sin, nor to follow him if he's just being flat out stupid. And we need community to help us to define what is stupid. (laughs) It's a picture of the Trinity and how Jesus is, though equal to the Father, willing to submit to the Father, loving leadership for the flourishing of his people. In the same way, a wife is to willingly submit to her husband in all things. And notice it says to her husband. It does not say women submit to men. Mm. Because I'm telling you right now, you come to my wife on that, ooh, it's going to be some land on the hands. My wife ain't supposed to submit to you, bruh. You better get your own rib. Pastors, I'm just joking. Y'all don't fire me. I'm joking. <laughs> nah, but for real, though. <laughs> that lady in the community group, if she's got an opinion, she's welcome to share her opinion and disagree with you. you if you're not her spouse, and if you are her spouse, she's welcome to disagree with you. It's not what submission means. It doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. Got a brain just like you got a brain. It's a presence. Well, both the husband and the wife are saying, we want to glorify God with our lives. Why? Turn to Galatians real quick. Galatians 2, 20. Because this is how one who's been redeemed and who is meditating on the good news of Jesus Christ postures their life. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Look at verse 20. The life I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is the posture of both a husband and a wife. And by the grace of God, when we wake up in the morning, we remind ourselves, that this life is not about me. It's about me pleasing the one who died for me. So really quickly, as wives, I just want to encourage you. One, you do not submit um, to a husband who is leading you into sin. And husbands, you should never force your wife to do something that is painful or that, that causes her harm. And the reason the Lord gave us the Bible and other Christians, whether it be pastors, counselors, or community leaders, is for us to help discern what is healthy and what is unhealthy. Sometimes we have to get on the floor, look at the instructions, and ask for help. So really quick, quick encouragements for spouses. One, make your spouse or your marriage a priority. We're going to talk about that marriage uh, next week. Make your spouse and your marriage a priority. If we're going to have marriages that are duets and not duels, we have to make sure that we don't have pseudo spouses. Bible says, for this reason, a man shall leave and cleave. That's covenantal language throughout the scripture. Should hold fast, leave and cleave. We got to make sure that our spouses are a priority, not our children. Our children is not your first priority. Many marriages break up after 18 years because kids leave the house 
and a couple for 18 years has made their child their priority and the husband or wife don't know each other. And so that means you may have to lessen stuff, activities, ministry, work to protect this institution. Your spouse, your kids should not be a pseudo spouse. Your job should not be a pseudo spouse. Better you to resign from your job than to resign from your spouse. Ministry, family, social media, television, entertainment, your friends is not your spouse. Second, make your relationship with Jesus a priority. Our only hope for bringing a healthy presence to each other is making sure that we each are abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. Ephesians chapter one, that we are finding our identity in Jesus. We talked about a previous week and not in each other. That we find our significance in our deepest nurturing love from the Father and from the Son and from the Holy Spirit and not seeking to find it from our spouse as a primary resource. And then third, is making your home a gospel culture. Before Paul goes into uh, verse 22 through 32, he says this, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in fear, in the fear of Christ. And here Paul is talking to the church, but I believe these principles apply to marriage. That our homes must be a home where the gospel becomes a culture. Where we are able to worship Jesus together, to sing songs together, to listen to godly music that is edifying together. Where we are giving thanks to God for each other, just as Adam gave thanks to God for Eve. At last, at last, we should constantly be giving thanks to our our spouse. And the reason why some of our marriages are are very, all marriages have dysfunction, but are dysfunctional to to capacity that that is super unhealthy is because we've stopped appreciating our spouse. And some of us have an attitude of entitlement and we don't say thank you. We don't stop to think what they are doing right and how the Lord is using them to compliment us, but rather all we see is what they are doing wrong. And what they're doing wrong may be a, a legitimate thing, but we can't make that them doing that right the ultimate thing because then it's an idol. And so how do we do this? Just before this, he, he tells us to, to walk in the Spirit. It's impossible for us to do this without living in the spirit, being filled with the spirit, Paul says the verse before. Being filled with the spirit is pursuing Jesus through the ordinary means of grace, through prayer, fasting, reading the scriptures, abiding in Christ. The gospel is a message of repentance, it's a message of forgiveness, and it's a message of grace. But if we are not finding that in Jesus Christ ourselves, we will not have that to give to our spouse. Bible says love covers a multitude of sin. And the reason why some of us cannot cover any of our spouse's sin is because we do not spend time meditating on how we've been forgiven. 
And so we go rally for rally, tick for tat, and it becomes, it becomes a duel. So this week, I want to encourage you to pray with each other and to pray for each other. I want to encourage you to write a letter of appreciation to your spouse, even if you're mad as H-E double hockey sticks. <laughs> Just write down what you appreciate about your spouse. And then singles, I want to encourage you to pray this week, every day, for a married couple in your church. You don't even have to let them know that you're praying for them. But pray that they would more and more, as the years go on, become a duet and not grow into being a duel. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.